Recently, so I've always been working to keep our campus instance pretty up to date, and so we've gotten uh, kind of a lot of the the newer versions of uh, feature sets for continuous integration, and we've started to make use of a lot of them to just automate more of our our day to day workflow. And we're going to kind of walk through basically what you would do to set up a project in the, the CI system and what all those various steps would look like. And I guess uh, one thing that I will mention that I thought of while I was sitting here that did not make the PowerPoint is depending on when you created your project in GitLab, pipelines may or may not be enabled. So if some of this doesn't show up in your project and you're wanting to use it, you need to go somewhere on the left to settings, and I believe it is under general and the permissions header. It might not be under general, but somewhere there is a permissions header. And there's a toggle switch for pipelines, and that needs to be toggled on. Otherwise, a lot of what we're talking about will not show up in your project. So, yeah. <coughs> That's uh, kind of a, a graphic describing the, the process, I guess. The, the idea of continuous integration from start to finish is you initially create your commit, commit represented by uh, this, this short hash here. And it goes through its, its automation process as it goes along. Each step in this, this pipeline happens. And if everything goes well and you get all of the green checks, then in theory that release gets carted off to a, a server somewhere and deployed to your users uh, with really potentially no interaction at all. And so the, the CI itself, there's really no restriction in, in what you can do with it as far as uh, languages or platforms or anything like that. The CI process does need uh, what we will we'll call a runner, and we'll talk more about that later, but basically it's the process that actually does the, the CI process. That does need to be installed on a, a computer somewhere. Uh, that program is written in Golang, so it runs on basically any platform imaginable. Uh, the CI process itself, and we've listed some of the common languages here, but in reality, it, it could work with anything. Uh, at the heart of it, you're just defining if it's a Linux C system, probably a bash script. If it's Windows, either command line or PowerShell script. So if you can somehow do it through the command line, you can use CI with it. So basically, you can do a lot of stuff in parallel, like it says, so you're not, not restricted to a linear pipeline. If you have multiple runners or multiple jobs within a single stage, they can all run in parallel. So say maybe uh, you wanted to test that your app compiles and works on a couple of variants of Linux and maybe two versions of Windows and Mac OS. Those could all run in parallel and uh, report back. So save some time there. You can see all the logging in real time, so as all of these, these scripts run from within the GitLab environment, you can just go and 
and click on the specific job or pipeline, you can see uh, a live stream of the console output. So if something gets stuck that you think it's taking a little bit longer, you're just curious what the output looks like, you can always go back and look at that. So what basically starts this whole process off is a .gitlab-ci.yml file. Now that project basically contains the entirety of the definition of how that CI pipeline should run. So that, that file gets created in the breadth of your project in GitLab. I believe there is an option somewhere in settings to have it use a different file, and I believe that will also take a, a path. So if for some reason you're strongly opposed to having the file named that or having it in the root of your project, you could tell it it's in a different spot. I haven't actually experimented with that at all, so I'm presuming it works. But it, it tracks basically everything. Uh, so it, it would define each of the stages, what could run in parallel. If you have a certain dependencies, a dependency might be if you're compiling your project, you probably need to pull in any third-party libraries or dependencies before you can actually do the compile. So those, those steps couldn't happen in parallel. All of that sort of configuration happens in this file. It goes in your, your repository, so everything gets tracked. You can see sort of what, what edits have happened in the past. If you ever change anything, you get the benefit of that being under version control. This is where you define any binary artifacts. So if the output of your project is some kind of a, an executable file, or in the case of a web application, maybe that would be a, a deployable package that could be considered an artifact. GitLab will actually make these available for download when the pipeline's completed. So part of the pipeline might be go through, compile everything, run your unit tests, and if everything's well, zip up this, you know, this EXE, and when you're on your, your project in GitLab, you can just download that EXE that was built on a separate server somewhere. So you don't have to think about, uh, oh, what developer compiled that last? Did they have something set a little bit different on their machine and maybe it didn't compile the same as if another person did? Can remove some of that. And everything can run in Dockers. So that's something that we've been doing a lot with recently. And we have a pretty wide variety of applications. Some of them have different system dependencies, either uh, PHP is the big one, maybe different PHP languages. Or maybe we're just updating a project and we want to see how is this going to run against a new language. The nice thing with Docker is we can do all that and we don't have to actually affect the, the system that this is running on. So if we decide, oh, I want to see what will happen if we use a, a different version of PHP, we can just change the image and it'll do it. And we don't have to uh, affect the, the main server that it runs on. So, so we have uh, the, the kind of overall architecture is saying that the GitLab server is sort of the, the heart of it. It contains that file that has all the configuration and some other things that we'll get into in future slides. And then you have this, this idea of a, a runner that I alluded to a bit earlier. Ideally, this would run on, on a test server somewhere. If you have a, a test server that maybe a QA or test copy of your application is running on, that would be a good place to put this runner. Now, you know the environment's more or less already set up to handle your application. <clears throat> Alternatively, if you don't have that, it is possible to just put a runner on your own laptop or in a, a virtual box machine on your laptop. You're not going to get the, uh, the performance out of it that you would on a, a full-size server, and you probably wouldn't want to share that with other people. You 
as though others can't start running jobs on, on your local desktop. But if you just have a you know single project in there and you want to try some of this out, you can definitely just start it up on, on your machine and run some simple jobs on there to see how it all works. Yeah, as I said, the, the runner's written in GoLang, so really no restrictions on on where that can run. It doesn't have, to the best of my knowledge, any prerequisites of the host that it runs on. Uh, the sort of runtime for GoLang is typically burned into the executable, so you can basically drop this binary in the system and it's going to run as is. All of the major platforms <coughs> are supported. Again, it's basically a coordinator for various shell scripts or other kinds of, of scripts calling other utilities. So it, it in itself does not have any restrictions on what languages you could, you could use it to analyze. So yeah, the, the first step is to create a new project. Um, you can either go through the, the new project wizard in, in GitLab or Noel's got a uh, command up there too that will work to kind of create one on the fly if you don't want to go through the, the full UI. So once, once you have your, your project all set up, either a new one or an existing project, the next thing is to go grab the runner. So we have the, the URL here. A Google search of GitLab runner will get you to the same place. Uh, they've got a, a download link there where you can get a, a binary for each platform. And then the next step is going to be to register that runner. So when you're in one of your projects, and on the left, you have the navigational menu. It's a little bit hard to see, but under settings, you'll have a line that says CICD. And I believe that line item, again, is gone if you don't toggle the, the permissions on for CICD. But if you have it on, you'll be able to get to this page. And this will give you an overview of all of the runners that are active for your project. And you can register runners in two places. You can register a runner on an individual project, or alternatively, you can register a runner inside of a group in GitLab. So if you have all of your projects under one group, like for instance, our team has all of our projects under a, an ITS group, we can register these runners at the ITS group level and they'll automatically be available to all of our projects. So we'll only have to do this setup once. If you're just testing it out on your own machine, you'll want to do this on, on an individual project. The, the key things you're looking for here will be the, the URL and the token. They're not really readable here. The URL is literally just HTTPS get.unl. And the token is, uh, oh, maybe 20-some character alphanumeric string that you'll use to register. And then you would run a command uh, similar to this. So if you're on the, the page where you download the GitLab runner, they have all this documented and what the various flags are. But this is the gist of it. Um, you register this runner. If you're on a Linux system, you may well have to see this. There are some ways that you can get around doing that. Uh, you just have to create some folders ahead of time for it to save its config files. You give it the token and the URL that you got from GitLab. You give it a list of tags. The tags are important if you have more than one of these runners. So in, in our instance, as we've started this up, we have one runner that's running in a Windows environment, so that's the one that we would use for like our C-sharp.net projects. And we have another runner that, that's in the Linux environment, so that's the one that we use for our PHP projects, and also anything that runs in Docker. So when you define these, you can set up some tags, and you can use these later on to restrict 
where your jobs are on. So if you have Windows and Linux environments, it may well be the case that your project it can't do a lot of the things you want on, on one operating system or another. So you can use these tags to refine where it will run. Uh, otherwise, it just picks one of the runners at random. Uh, typically, probably whichever one has the least workload at the current time. Otherwise, I think it's just random. It will create a file similar to this. Uh, so this is the, the reason why you may need sudo. It creates this in the Etsy folder. If you're familiar with the Linux, that can't be done typically without red. You can have this go in some spots. So again, for a lot of like the, the UNL servers, if you're doing this on a server managed by systems, check out the, the documentation. They've got some more details on, on how you could do this without needing it. So then we'll make a file like this. Um, this is meant to be mostly uh, human readable. It's really similar to the, the YAML syntax. There are some additional configuration options that you can edit in this file if you need to. For the most part, if you're just uh, starting out with a project, you just leave this file alone. Um, it's good to know it's there, but there's not a lot you generally need to do in there. So this is kind of a, a different registration for a runner. If you're doing Docker, there's some extra options you can give it. So you can give it a default image that it would execute things in. If you're familiar with the, the Docker environment at all, Alpine is probably one of the smallest images that you can do in, in Docker. It's a really bare bones Linux-based image. If you're doing simple tests and scripts, that can be really fast. That image spins up and oftentimes under a second. So just kind of an example of some of the extra flags you might define for that. And the, the config file for that, and it's going to have a lot more in it. Um, so this does kind of show if you decide you want to change this down the down the road or change the base images, anything like anything like that, you can come in here and, and alter some of these. So after you've registered a runner, this page that we showed earlier will look a little different. You'll start to get a, a section in there that will list each runner. Um, the runners are identified by a hash of sorts, so they don't tend to have a friendly name, they just get a hash. Uh, it will show the, the name you gave it kind of underneath it a little bit smaller. What you probably can't read in the, the blue squares are all of the tags you've added to that machine, so you can go and see the tags. And then on the right, you get a couple options to either delete the runner or pause it. You know, pausing it basically just says don't send any jobs to this runner for a little while. Um, if you have this running on a laptop or something and, and you were going to power it down or go somewhere else, it might be a good idea to pause it, otherwise it'll try to send it jobs. And, and wonder why it's offline. So this file, we talked a little bit about it, but uh, basically every time you do a, a push to your GitLab repository, the GitLab server will parse this file and look to see if there's any actions that it should perform based on that. So I talked about a lot of the, the other points here. We'll show an example of this file later. But you can restrict what branches tasks run on, and that's where the, the continuous deployment part of this really comes into play and in saying, you know, obviously if you're on a, some feature branch that maybe isn't working, you definitely don't want that to get deployed off in production. So the step that would do anything on those should be restricted to maybe just your master branch and things like that. It's really the only place the, the information is. There's uh, one exception to this for sort of your, your secret values that we'll get to, but other than that, 
all of the information about the biplane is found in this one file. YAML is space, white space sensitive, so watch your, your spacing. And it's, it's typically indented with two spaces, so if you, you get uh, happy with the tab key in there, it's not going to load the file. It will not read it. So this is what one might look like. Uh, it's a fairly straightforward YAML file. This is going to be one that will do a, a Docker container. So one of the, the options in here, that image tag at the top specifies the Docker image to use. So that kind of signifies this runs on, on Docker. So when you kind of first look at the, the CI files, there's a lot to it. They look a little bit complicated. If you break them down into the smaller parts, it, it makes a little bit more sense. So the, the before script part, that's going to be anything that needs to happen prior to anything else in your pipeline. So if you have maybe third-party dependencies you need to load in, if you have environment variables or system paths that you need to modify for other tools, that's where you would do a lot of that. And then you get into after, after script is basically the same thing at the end. So if you need to clean up after you're, you're done, that's where you would do any of that. And then you get the actual steps. So you can see there's two steps in this one. There's build one and test one. So each of these has a stage defined and then a script. And the script is literally, in this case, just a, a bash script. So whatever you put in there would get executed uh, in bash in the context of whatever user you started that runner as earlier. So you can control what user that runner runs as, and basically that program is going to invoke whatever script you have to find there. And so once you've uh, You've gotten this in. This is a common thing that you'll get right away. This one has, has bitten me multiple times. You go and you get your, your CI file in there. Everything looks great. You push it up. And uh, you go over here, and it says the job is stuck. Uh, if you're just starting out the, the pipelines, this will probably happen to you. Uh, the, the cause of that is you have to give it tags. So it is actually not possible to create a job with no tags defined at all. You have to give it something. If you leave out the tags, it will not know what machines it should be running that job on, and so it will just not run it. There might be a way to give it a, a default for no tags, but typically that's not advisable and probably cause problems, because honestly, this is an easy one to forget. When you're making the, the files, the, the tags, it's an easy section to overlook. So. Yeah, and if you don't do your tags right, you know, maybe in this case, like you have a, a bash script and it decides, oh, I'm going to run this on Windows. That's probably not going to work out too well. So, let's do the set. So, once you get all of that done, this is kind of what the, the pipeline page looks like. So it's kind of uh, hard to, to read up here, but on the left navigation, uh, if you have CI/CD enabled in your permissions again, you'll get a, a CI/CD link on the left in the navigation tree, and then under that, that's where you'll get to all the, the details about the CI process. So the top link is pipelines, and that's the one that we're kind of showing here. Um, that shows an entire pipeline process. Underneath that is a, a link that says jobs, uh, a job is essentially each one of those blocks in that, that CIAML file. Uh, so each pipeline consists of multiple jobs. 
And if you click on a, a row in that pipeline, you'll get to that, that page it'll have where it shows each of the stages. If you click into, there we go. There we go. If you click into a specific job, you can see the, the console output. Uh, so this will basically be as you know, if you just ran, ran that script yourself on a machine. It echoes all this out. So if you want to go back and, and look at the output from a task, you can do that here. And so we so far have created four Docker images just for, for our team that we're using for various things. Um, so the big ones, PHP Lint is one that there's actually several variants of this, but this is a basic Linux image that has PHP installed. It can go through and do uh, linting. If you haven't had the pleasure of working with uh, PHP, uh, it is extremely forgiving of syntax errors, such that if you don't execute the line with the error, the rest of the file will behave fine. So it's actually surprisingly easy to get things potentially all the way into production with a syntax problem. And so this basically does uh, some, some basic validation of those files. And there's a version for each of the, the major PHP versions on this image. Static code analysis is a, a general image. Uh, depending on where we're at for time, we, we talk more about this. It may be a, a future dev form topic. Where we're also investigating uh, a system called SonarCube, which is a code analysis tool. It just does static analysis to look for bad coding practices, potentially some security flaws, things like that. And this is a Docker image that has the, the scanner for that process so it can scan the code. And then too specific to Magento. So, if you've ever used marketplace.unl, kind of our big e-commerce platform, that is based on Magento. Uh, we're doing a lot of work on that right now. It turns out Magento has a lot of very complicated system requirements to even run the unit tests. Uh, complicated enough that we had to make custom containers to run those tests. So we actually have two. We have one that does the, the XML validation, so it looks at the XML schema definitions and makes sure that the XML is well formed. And the second version runs the, the PHP unit tests. So this is a close-up of what you couldn't see too well on the previous image when you're on the, the pipelines page from the CI-CD menu on the left and GitLab. This is kind of what this would look like. So this is the, the pipeline for our Docker images. So at the beginning step, two things happen in parallel. It does a validation of the make file, and it goes through and, and lints. I believe it's the, the Docker files is what I believe it's doing on that step. Then the second stage is it, it runs the make file and it makes all of the images. Next step, if that passes, it does some basic tests on that. Um, we're still refining what it actually does, but the idea here would be to make sure the image is built successfully that they actually could be run. And then lastly, uh, we're passing some of this off to Tenable to do uh, security scans on the Docker container. Uh, it does a lot of system dependency checks and things like that. Uh, so if you have Docker containers, Tenable has a, a product that's capable of scanning Dockers. I don't believe we have a license for this right now. I think it's still kind of in trial. We were kind of working with the security team to see 
basically what this could do. And it's starting to see Docker used uh, a lot more for various things. So we were kind of curious how that could integrate, what kind of information it gets, gets us back. So this was our uh, trying that out. And so this is kind of an example of what some of these stages look like. So we showed that uh, GitLab CI YAML file earlier. This is the, the actual blocks that, that we're using in that, that pipeline that I, that I just showed. So, um, you know, in these cases, it's actually uh, starting up Docker containers to, to do some validation. In other cases, it's just using the, the Linux make utility to run, run tests from a make file. So again, you have a lot of flexibility on, on how you do a lot of this. So this is the, the build. So this is basically it just runs make. So you can see what, what this would look like. So it, it launches the, the GitLab runner. You get some basic debug info. It pulls down the latest version of your, your project and then starts running the, the script. So you can see the, the last part there, it, it calls make and then you can see all of the output from, from the make command. And yeah, this is uh, the, the testing step. Hopefully when everything is done, you get the last line there in green that says job succeeded. Um, yeah, so this is more of our, our stage. This is one of them that contacts uh, Tenable, pushes some of that off, I believe, so. So this is a, an important part that you'll probably run into fairly soon. The tenable scans that we're doing, they need an API key. And not just anybody can you know, submit things to Tenable. And you'll probably run into this with some other things you're doing too. And you definitely shouldn't have those API keys just committed in the CI file in your repo for the world to see. So they have environment variables that you can use in here. Uh, GitLab has their set of variables, and I'm not sure if we have any in this one, but GitLab itself has variables you can use in the script. And uh, again, a Google search of like GitLab CI variables, the first tip will give you a page of here's all the variables you can use. It's a lot of common stuff like uh, the current branch that you're on, maybe uh, some of the project names, paths, things like that. But you can define some of your own. And in this case, we needed to define uh, API keys to push this up to Tenable. So in your project, under settings and CI CD, there's a section called variables here. And if you expand that, you can essentially define your, your like secret tokens, the variables that your script needs to run, but you don't want them in the repository for everyone to see. So GitLab itself holds on to these and adds them as environment variables to the script at runtime. Uh, so then they do not have to be in your, your CI file that's committed. You can keep them off in here. It's also nice if these are going to potentially change because it doesn't require a commit to change that. Whereas if you have it in the, the CI YAML file, since that's part of the repository, you have to commit it. I guess a, a note on the protected slide there. There we go. Back one, there's a little switch on the right that says protected. That is really misleading and it's not documented well here. It sounds like that switch should mean that that variable is protected in some way or sensitive. It kind of does, but what it actually does is if you toggle that on, that variable will only be available if a build is running on a branch that you've marked it as protected. 
So if you haven't set that up in GitLab, you can mark images as protected. It keeps you from accidentally deleting them and things like that. But if you toggle that switch, that's what actually happens, is that variable only gets released to protected branches. If you have more public projects, that's where, where this really comes into play. Um, say, for instance, you had a lot of this running on a project where you let outside people contribute code. And that outside person committed a, a CI YAML file that did nothing but just echo all the environment variables. Now they can go look at that script and see all of your secret tokens. And that's not something you probably want. So that's where that switch can come into play because you have the ability to prevent other people from committing at all to those higher level branches. Meaning somebody on the project would have to review that file before it actually ran. So it keeps the outside people from potentially committing something that could leak these. If you have your project set to private then this really doesn't do much. Uh, it really comes into play if you have people committing to your repository that you may not fully trust. Yeah, this is kind of what, uh, what one of these looks like on our PHP lint tool. So this pulls down a project and you can specify the, the directories and file extensions that it should, uh, should lint. PHP commonly has other extensions that sometimes have code in them, so we have the ability to scan for that. That's kind of what, what one of those jobs looks like. And yeah, I think that's kind of a high-level overview of how we're using CI right now, at least. Still kind of entry phase for us. We're trying to get it set up on, on a lot of projects to see how it works out. Uh, I'm saying on the, the way over here that I'm happy we're finally to a point where a lot of our initial experimentation is kind of wrapping up and we have enough things stable that adding CI to other projects has become more of a, a copy base now. We can actually just copy blocks from the CI file to completely different projects and then they'll run fine because oftentimes there isn't anything project specific in that block. So we're finally kind of to a point where where it's not uh, experimenting and trying to find out as much how to do it, it's just get this in more places and, and see how it actually works. So, questions? So, uh, so where do like say your your build scripts or make files live? Do they live with the project or in the pipeline definition of on GitLab? They could technically live in either place. Um, for ours, like the make file is part of the project, so that's committed with the project. Um, when that, that script section runs, it runs in the working directory of your project. So if you have a make file at the root of your project in that script, you could just do make, and it's going to run that file. Um, if your make file is really only two or three shell commands, then maybe you just put those right in the, the CI file. I think it really depends how complicated it is. Um, you probably wouldn't want, you know, a hundred line script in line in that YAML file because that's going to be a little bit messy to maintain. You probably want to pull that out into a separate file. But I think it depends you know, how complicated or how many lines really it involves. All right. Thanks, Alan.